So that said, we're going to dive into our uh, sermon series that we started a few weeks ago called The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, where we're working our way through the book of 1 Corinthians. And, and the reason we call it The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly is because this church of Corinth is all three of those things uh, at, at different times. It, it can be a really good church, and it can be just a flat-out a place where some bad stuff are happening, and then there's some place where some really ugly, ugly stuff is happening, and, and you're like, ah, how's that even happening happening in church? And, uh, and so Paul kind of writes this letter to this church in Corinth because he started the church, he planted it, uh, he got it all started, got it all going, and then he's heard that it's, it's kind of going off the rails, and so he writes this letter to say, um, you know, to kind of encourage them back in the right direction, and sometimes his encouragement is a little little kind of harsh type of parenting type uh, disciplinary uh, encouragement, uh, but it's, it's a fantastic letter. And I was talking to somebody um, earlier this week that was, that was, you know, that had mentioned that, you know, sometimes people have a really hard time with Paul and his writings, that he can come across maybe either arrogant or uh, just, I don't know, just cocky or, um, you know, just he's 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 a different type of personality, and that is all true. Like he is, he is a very interesting personality. But the more I dive into um, this letter and the other writings of Paul, the more I realize he's a very complex character. And 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 part of the reason that we don't get the beauty of the writings of Paul is that when we tend to read things, you guys ever you ever have you ever received an email or a text that. Uh, somebody meant one way and you received it a whole different way. You know what I'm saying? And so we have that we have that problem. Well, we've all received text from you, Lily, that we've taken the wrong way. So <laughs> just teasing. All right. So um, the, the part of the problem with the writings of Paul is that they're writings. And Paul is not, even though he's like this philosophical, theological, brilliant mind, uh, he's also a man that is full of character and full of emotion. And that character and that emotion doesn't come out in a flat reading of that text, a flat reading of that scripture. And, and so this particular chapter that we're going to deal with today, chapter 4, if you want to turn over there, First Corinthians chapter 4, uh, is, is a prime example of that because as I was studying this chapter, because this is what we all do, I'm, I'll admit it for you, um, what we all tend to do, especially when we read the writings of Paul, is that we, we read, 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 and we're like, man, that's good, that's powerful. And then you read a whole chunk, and you're like, I have no idea what that means. I'm just going to keep going. And, and, and you, and you kind of do that, right? And, and so we kind of just gloss through the difficult parts. And in the back of our mind, we're thinking, I'm confident that means something, but there's other words, and so I'm going to just keep going, right? And so, and so this, this chapter is one of those chapters where I think for a lot of years, I probably glossed over a lot of it because I was like, I don't even know what that means, but, uh, you know, whatever. The Holy Spirit will make me get it if he wants me to get it, and I just kind of jumped through it. And, and the problem, the, the reason that it has been, I think, so difficult for me to understand is because of what I just said. There's all this emotion and character in, in this that it doesn't come out in a flat reading. And so I'm going to try to work some of that back in so you can kind of try to understand, we can all try to understand what's going on here. Well, Paul, for the last three chapters, <coughs> for the last three chapters, he has been uh, dealing with divisions in the church. 
And these divisions have been centered around different personalities, different leaders, different preachers uh, that have come around, Paul included, another guy named Apollos, even, even Peter uh, the apostle. Uh, a lot of people like this where the people of Corinth were just such intellectual type people. They, they like to get behind a particular uh, method of thinking or a particular guru's way of teaching. And so, so this kind of bled into church life and they were picking and dividing, well, I follow Paul and I follow Peter and I follow Apollos and things like that. And, and it wasn't just like, I prefer him. It was like, I follow Paul and you're dumb if you don't. You know? And so there are all these divisions and, and, and uh, dissensions started taking place in the church. And Paul's hearing about it. He's, he's trying to get them back to what the church should be, which is a, a body of unity. Not uniformity. Not that we should all agree on every little detail. It's fine to have disagreements. It's fine to see things from a different point of view. But when those disagreements or those points of view become a hindrance in our unity, then it's become sin. And, and, and this is what Paul's trying to get across to them. And so this is the last chapter. We're getting ready to dive into some you know, heavy stuff in the next chapter. But this is the last chapter where he's, he's, he's kind of going to put that whole unity issue to bed and go, this is my last ditch plea to you of, of why this is so important. And so as he does this, we start in verse 1 of chapter 4. And, uh, and so it's just, his, his personality is so interesting. So he says this. He says, this is how one should regard us. Talking about himself and the other teachers, Apollos and Peter. He says, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Now, when we see that word steward, a lot of times we, we, our, our mind may think of another word. What do you think of when you hear steward? Stewardship, exactly. I had to help you there. So stewardship, yeah. It's, uh, it, it, and, and when we think of stewardship, we tend to think of you know, wise use of your finances you know, in a way that glorifies God or whatever. Uh, what Paul's talking about here is a steward in the sense of um, someone who has been entrusted with something of great importance, like a, a, an estate or a large piece of property or a portion of the kingdom or something like that. So who here watched uh, Downton Abbey? Anybody ever watch Downton Abbey? Yeah, and, and all the guys in the room are lying because you had to watch it with your wife. And, and so, so anyway, so if you watch Downton Abbey, you know that the, the, the people uh, that, that were kind of set in charge over that estate of Downton Abbey uh, were, you know, they're given that as, as stewards to run that for the king, for, for the kingdom, right? And if they are good stewards, then more responsibility is given to them and they're looked upon kindly and they're able to grow in that you know, in the, in the nobility and that sort of thing. And if they run it poorly, it's taken away from them and given to somebody else. And this is kind of the, the type of steward that Paul is talking about. He's like, we are servants of Christ, slaves of Christ, and stewards of the mysteries of God. Like, we've been entrusted. Like, we didn't come up with this. Like, we didn't, like, invent this ourselves. You guys are following us picking whom you like the best and trying to follow one of us. And this is not from us. This was given to us to steward well by someone else. It originated as far, far above our pay grade, right? And so that, that, and then he carries on. He says, moreover, it's required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or any human court. He's like, okay, I know you guys have been judging me. A lot of you have been judging me. I, it's, it, I, I'm really not that bothered by it. He says, in fact, I don't even judge myself, for I'm not aware of anything against myself. Now, there's that cocky Paul coming out, right, where you're like, okay, well, that seems a little arrogant, but, this is, but get, get what he's saying. He says, for I'm not aware of anything against myself, 
but I'm not thereby acquitted. It's the Lord who judges me. He's like, he's like I don't know of anything I did wrong while I was with you, but, but regardless of that, it doesn't matter because I don't judge myself. God judges me, and he'll sort all this out. So you, you know, I'm not worried about you judging me because I sit under the authority of a higher judge is what he's saying, okay? So then he goes on. Verse 5, Therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. So he, he, he uses this phrase, uh, do not pronounce judgment for the time, before the time. Has anybody ever, ever walked into a kitchen maybe where uh, somebody was cooking, maybe, maybe your mom or your wife or, or your husband or whoever else, and, 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 uh, and you kind of see what they're working on, and, and, and maybe you kind of walk in and first thing you do is like turn up your nose a little bit, and, oh, that smells kind of weird, and, and, and then you're looking at what they're cooking, and, and it's like, like uh, that, that that just looks weird. What are you, what are you making? And, and inevitably, that person who is cooking will say, get out of here. It's not done yet, right? It will, it'll be fine in the end. It's all going to turn out great. You're going to love it. Shut up and leave, right? And so this is kind of Paul kind of saying something similar, probably without all the attitude. I don't know. It's Paul, maybe. And so he says, he's like, don't pronounce judgment before it's time. Like, you guys are looking at me, and you're judging my ability to lead. You're judging my ability to speak uh, deep truths and things like that. And he's like, he's like, yeah, but, but you're, you're, you, you only see half the picture. You don't see the end result. It's God who will judge things in the end. Wait and see how all this pans out in the end. And I think you'll see a, a whole different story. And then, and then and he throws in this little end, you know, uh, that, that he'll, he'll bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. I think that's a little jab back at them to go, I think you'll find that you've got some judgment coming your way too, and, and uh, you know, that sort of thing. So he carries on, verse 6, and this is what he says. Now, he says, I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written. So I just want to stop there and just say that one of the biggest pitfalls in the Christian life is to take the Christian life beyond what is written. That it's so, we love rules and clear-cut guidelines and boundaries and ways, you know, checklists and ways to judge ourselves against each other and that sort of thing. And, and because we love that so much, it's really easy for us to take Scripture, which is beautiful and it's beneficial, and it's also extremely difficult to live up to. Can we all admit that? It, that it's extremely, like all by itself, Scripture is really hard to live by, and, and there's reason by, behind that that we'll get to eventually. But when you take that and go, ah, I'm going to add to that, like why would you add to something that's already so difficult? They may here ever plan a project, and you put so much thought and planning into it and, and, and all the details, and, and then you share those details with someone, and you're like, this, you know, this is how this is going to work. And then they want to, well, what if we did this? And what if we did this? And you're like, oh, you're already taking something complex and overcomplicating it even more. I don't even want to do it anymore. Go away, right? And so, so it's kind of that thing where, like, why would you take something as beautiful and beneficial and life-changing but, but honestly difficult to live up to and make it even more difficult? This is what the Pharisees were all about. They were, taking, they were about taking rules and multiplying those and 
you know, making one rule into 30 rules. And, and, uh, and, just, and so in our lives, we have to be careful that we not do that. I, I, let me throw this out there. As parents, I think you have to be extremely careful not to do that. If you're not, care, if you're not careful, you'll leave your kids with the, the impression that this faith is nothing but rules. And it's not. This faith is freedom. It's freedom. And when we constantly add and add and add to what God has given us that is good and that is perfect and make it more difficult and more complex than it needs to be, then we do that word a great disservice. So we, uh, he says that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written and that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. Like you have all this pride because you follow Paul or you follow whoever. He says, for who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? He's like, this didn't come from you either. He's like, you guys are, are arrogant and puffed up in yourselves and boasting as if you came up with this stuff and it was given to you. It was given to you. In the same way that it was given to me, it was given to you. It did not originate from us. It, we are not the arbiters of all things godly and wise. This comes from God. If you're going to boast about something, boast in him. Don't boast in who you follow or how smart you are or how wise you are, whatever. Boast in him instead, all right? All right, keep going. Verse 8. Now, okay, here's where, here's where the emote, like where Paul starts to lay it on thick. And Paul, one of the reasons I love Paul is because he's got the same spiritual gift that I have and that's the spiritual gift of sarcasm. And, and so it's a beautiful gift. You should, all should attain it. <laughs> um, <laughs> all right, hold on a second. <laughs> but sarcastic people don't care if you're on the receiving end. We just throw, we just throw it out there. So, so here's Paul, and he's laying on the sarcasm. He's laying on the... Um, like I said, the character here that may not come out in a flat reading. So let me try to get, get, help you understand what he's saying. He says, he says, already you have all you want. Already you've become rich. Without us, you've become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. And, he, and so he, he's, like, he's like, I see, I see. He's like, look at yourselves. You know, you've, you've, you've got all you want. You're, you're, you, you've, you've already, you've, you're already rich in everything. You, you've already, you're already kings and all. Like you, like, you are the highest thing about all of this faith, right? He's, he's laying on this sarcasm. But then he says this. He says, for I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death. Because we've become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. Now, Paul's conjuring up an image here that was very familiar to the people in his time, but we were totally detached from, from what he's trying to, to throw out here. And, and it was, what, what he's talking about is kind of this triumphal entry that would take place after a, a battle, after a war. Whereas, let's say, uh, somebody would... You know, like the Roman Empire would send out their battles to go fight another country and try to take over that country or whatever. They didn't, you know, nowadays when we send our soldiers out to battle, we can pretty much watch it real time, 
right? And so, I mean, it's, it's all broadcast live, a lot of it anyway. And, and it, I mean, within minutes of something happening, we know how a battle went. We know whether we were victorious or we came up on the short end. of something. That was not the case. So they would send their people off to battle. There were no texts. There were no cell phones. There were no phones. There were no anything. There was, there was people with, with handwriting. That's all they had, right? And so they would send off their soldiers to war, and, and they wouldn't know. They would not know how things went until they came back. Can you imagine doing that? Like just sitting around waiting. I wonder how things are going. I guess we'll find out someday when everybody gets back or if they don't, right? And so, and so that's what would happen. So as an army made its way back to its hometown, they would send people ahead uh, you know, speedily to, to let people know, hey, we're back, we're coming in. Things have gone great, and so the, everybody would gather in the streets. They would usually march through, the mar- army would march through this kind of triumphant arch that was built or whatever like that, and they would, they would parade through the streets, and people would be cheering on the fact that they had won and that if they were victorious. And behind the armies that were coming in and being paraded, the very last in the line of this parade would be the men from the other country that they had captured and defeated and they would bring them in and people would throw food at them and they would jeer and boo and everything else and then they would either be sold into slavery at the end of the parade or they would just be executed that's the way it was and so Paul is conjuring up this image right here when he says this he says for I think that God has exhibited us as apostles as last of all like men sentenced to death because we've become a spectacle to the world to angels and to men he's he's like He's like, you guys are taking us and lifting us up in weird and unhealthy ways. He says, but you know how I feel? I don't feel that way at all. I feel like my life has been given to God, that God owns me, that I'm his slave, that like, I don't feel lifted up by God, so why would I want to feel lifted up by you? It's kind of, kind of the concept. And then he goes on and he says this. He says, He's talking about him and the other apostles. He says, we're fools for Christ's sake. We're fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To to this present hour, he's talking about right now. Right now, we hunger and thirst. We're poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. He says, when when reviled, we don't revile back, we, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, and the parentheses there is like you're slandering us. When slandered, we entreat. We come to you and we talk it out. We try to give you the facts and we come to you with grace and gently. He says, we've become and still are like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. This this term scum, it was uh, whenever this Greek word is used that we translate into scum, it's almost always referred to when people would take baths back then and wash up, they would, they would usually use olive oil in their bathing. And so they would, they would rub olive oil all of themselves to get, kind of get cleaned up and stuff like that. Well, that olive oil would mix with the dirt and the thing that was on them. And so they would use these scrapers and scrape it off of their skin to kind of get all that stuff off. And that was the scum. Our closest equivalent to that would be the ring around the bathtub, right? And Paul is like, that's, that's us. We're just, we're just the scum of the earth. That's, and he says, he says, 
We're, we're the refuse of all things. One of my favorite uh, names for a church, there's a church in, in the Denver area that is called Scum of the Earth Church. I love that name. It's such a great name. Scum of the Earth Church. It's in the Denver area. And he's, he's like, we're not trying to, like, I'm not competing with Apollos. I'm not competing with Peter. And when you, turn, when you kind of turn this church thing into the American idolization of church, like, oh, I like you and like what you did, but you got to go, and we're voting you off this week, and, you know, whatever. He's like, he's like you're, you're taking something that is beautiful, a beautiful gift from God, and you're perverting it in a really weird way. He's like, we don't hold ourselves up as somebody to be honored in worship. We are, we're, the, we're scum. We're the stuff you scrape off your skin. We're just the scum of the earth. That's a different, like, that's a different way of thinking. Like, Paul like if anybody, I mean, Paul wrote a good, a large chunk of the New Testament, right? He's, he's an apostle recruited by Jesus himself post-resurrection. Like if anybody had a right to, to kind of lift himself up and go, get in line behind me, you know, that sort of thing. I mean, he's, it, it might be Paul that would have that right, but he doesn't take that. He, instead, he sees himself as God's slave, God's steward, just scum of the earth, I'm, I'm not trying to lift myself up. like the, and, he's, and what he's trying to do here, he's trying to remind them. Like it's been a while, it's been a year or two since he's been with them. He's trying to remind them, you remember what kind of leader I was to you. You know the, what, the gospel that I proclaimed. You know how this church was planted and the principles in which it was done. And you saw me live my life. It doesn't make sense that you're slandering me this way. It doesn't make sense that you're dividing over different leaders Remember all this stuff that I gave you, and I'm not the one to be lifted up any more than anybody else. And then verse 14, he goes on, he says, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. Now, this word that we translate guides is a Greek word. It's pedagogus. Everybody say pedagogus. Yeah, it's a great word. So pedagogus is this word that basically means um, it's more than a babysitter, but less than a parent. It is somebody, a guardian. Somebody, so it was very common back in this time for, for people to have a, maybe a household slave or something like that that they would put in charge of the children. Uh, so while the parents were doing off the, all their you know, stuff and, and, and mixing in the world and you know, doing what they needed to do to kind of prosper, they would put someone in charge of the children. And, and these people would do their best to raise up their kids with the values that the parents had. And, and a lot of times the kids were constantly, you know, getting out of control and they're chasing them down, trying to get things back under control and, and that sort of thing. And, and, and Paul uses that term. He says, you know, you've had countless guardians or babysitters or whatever else he said, in Christ, but you don't have many fathers. There's a difference. There's a difference between dad and or mom, or versus someone who's there temporarily, who's not really the final authority. And if you've ever been a kid, and you all have, um, you, you understand the difference. He says, for I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then be imitators of me. That's why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. And he's kind, of, he's kind of building this picture of you're kind of getting out of control underneath the, underneath the rule of the guardian, but dad's coming back. 
Like, dad's coming back. You know how I taught you. You know how this church thing is supposed to work. You know, like, what the gospel is, and you're taking it and you're running in weird and unhealthy and dysfunctional ways, things that aren't going to cause the growth of this church, they're going to cause the destruction of it. It's like, you guys have been running a little too wild, but it's come, like, I'm coming back. In fact, that's what he says the very next thing in verse 18. He says, some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills. And I'll find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. I love that phrase. The kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. He's like, I'm coming back, and, and, and we'll hash all this out, and you know, we'll do it all face to face. He's like, but the, the prover will not be my opinion. The prover will be who's the power of God behind Who's the power of God behind? Because that's the proof in the pudding here. So he kind of throws this out. But then, then now this, this last phrase seems like a threat. And I, th- I, don't, I don't take it as a threat. I take it as someone who is familiar with this group of people and loves them and cares for them. And it's kind of a, um, it's kind of a, a, a good-natured rib, uh, if you will. And he says this. He says, he says, come on, what do you wish? What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? He's like, I'm coming back. And so, come on, guys, what do you want? Do you want me to come back and and play the angry dad? Or do you want to feel the embrace of a loving father? Because that's what I want. Like, that's what I I want to come back and let's just get together and let's fellowship and let's do. So, you know, get get the house in order. Do things the way you were trained in the gospel and that sort of thing. Now, I I, kind of worked through all of this and, and, the whole point of all of this that I really want to drive home right now is this. It's just one statement. Go ahead and put it up there. That godly authority is powered by the cross. Godly authority is powered by the cross. Godly authority doesn't have to stand up and go, I'm in charge. Everybody follow me. Right? That, you know, do what I want, you know, and I'll do nothing. That's not godly authority. Godly authority is powered by... This is why he keeps bringing up the gospel. This is why he keeps bringing up Jesus. This is why why he's like, you know how I was with you when I was there. How everything I did was motivated by the cross of Jesus Christ. I did not present myself as somebody to be worshipped. I'm the scum of the earth. I don't look at myself that way. You guys have made these weird inequalities. That's not what we preach to you. Because what the, the thing about Paul is that Wherever Paul went, and you could say this of the other apostles too, people had never seen anything like them before. They had never seen that style of servant leadership. They had never seen somebody come in and love them in really hard and difficult ways so that a beautiful community of Christ could be built up. They'd never seen somebody do selfless leadership before, and and, and it was a big deal. And Paul here is reminding them. It's reminding the guys, you know, you've taken this and you've twisted it, you've made it something ugly. Let's get back to what it was in the beginning. It wasn't about Paul, and it wasn't about Apollos, and it wasn't about Peter. It was only and ever about the cross of Jesus Christ. That's all that it was ever about. So let's get back to that. Godly authority is powered by the cross. And when I say that, this is what I mean. Is that Now, here's the, here's the thing. We have... 
Uh, in our culture today, we have a, a hard time with that word authority. We don't like authority. We don't like being under the authority of someone else. We don't, you know, whatever. But there's a difference between authority and authoritarian. You guys understand the difference? There's a difference between somebody who, who exercises authority, good, healthy, godly authority, and someone who is authoritarian, my way or the highway, that their leadership is really all about themselves and their own advancement and everything else. And, you know, I'm sure some of you have worked under bosses where that seemed to be the case, where it was just like they don't care about the employees. It's all about them and their bonus and their whatever, you know, and their relationships. And, 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 and that has no place in, has no place in life but it has, certainly has no place in church life. It certainly has no place in church life. So to, to, the, to LHC's leaders this morning, for those of you who are in different leadership uh, positions uh, across our, our church, this is, a, this is the question that I would have you join me in asking ourselves. Does my leadership resemble the cross? Is my, is my, is my leadership selfless and sacrificing? Or is it more about me? Now, it's really easy to say, no, my leadership's all about the gospel. But sometimes that, you know, that might be true, but it's really about the gospel your way. It's really about you advancing or you getting your way or you, you know, whatever else. It's about your agenda. It's about your preferences. It's about, you know, the way you think the, everything should go. Does your leadership resemble the cross? Is it sacrificing? Is it selfless? Is it collaborative? Is it, is it something where people feel like they're welcome to interject and contribute to what's going on? Or is it always, are you always, as Andy Stanley says, are you always the smartest person in the room? Is everybody else's ideas dumb and yours are brilliant? Because that's not godly leadership. It's not. In church, it doesn't, it's not just about Church leadership, you can take this into every area of your life. Is your leadership in your home this way? Is it kind and sacrificing and loving? Is it gentle? Is it, is it all these things that a good, godly servant leader should be? Is, it, is, is your leadership in your place of work this way or in your school or wherever it is you find yourself in your community organizations or your little league teams or whatever else you're involved in? Is, it, is your leadership something in, in, in such a, done in such a way that when people watch you lead, they're seeing glimpses of the cross. Because that's what good, godly people who are leading do. They're not trying to build up their own platform. They're just trying to advance the kingdom of God. Just trying to advance the kingdom of God. Let's be a people who will... really. Because here, here's where disunity so often creeps into the church, and, and I've been a part of churches that were like this, and I'm sure some of you have been too, where the leadership that takes place in the church is all about power grabs. I want to be the one in control. I want to be the one that has a say. I want to be the one that is calling the shots. I want to make sure that my family's needs are met. I want to make sure that, you know, that, you know, the traditions that my parents started this church or kept and, you know, whatever else. I, I want to, it's all grab power, grab power, grab power, and wield that power in an unhealthy way to the point that you are not building up the church of Christ, but instead you are suppressing it and crushing its spirit. And that kind of leadership has no place in the church. Ultimately, I, as your pastor, I'm not the leader of this church. We're all led by Jesus Christ. We're all led by the Holy Spirit. 
And if it ever looks like we're not, then it's time for literally a come to Jesus meeting, right? It's time for us to go, I think we've got the cart before the horse here and we've made ourselves more important than the very gospel we're trying to reach out to. One of the things I love about this church is that uh, as much as we love our church, as much as we love each other, we love our Jesus more, and I think most of us even love our community more. Like we understand that we are on mission here in this community. And so we will do things out of the ordinary for church life to make sure that we are reaching this community in a way that is beneficial to them, that really builds the kingdom of God, really and truly builds that kingdom. And that's what, that's what church should be about. It's not about us. It's not about, what's one, one of our core value statements that we have here at Living Hope is that um, uh, it, the church is, what is it? Somebody help me. <laughs> it's, it's not, um, we don't go to church, we are the church. We don't go to church, we are the church. We are, like, the church is not here for us. We are the church, and we are here for the world. That's the statement. The church is not here for us. We are the church, and we are here for the world. So there will be some element of you kind of deciding where to go to church that's based on, you know, where you think your family's spiritual needs are most met and that sort of thing. But after that initial decision is made, that kind of, consumeristic attitude about church should cease. And then your attitude is, I am part of this church, and it's not about me. It's about Jesus. It's about his kingdom. And so I'll sacrifice. I'll give. I'll serve. I'll do whatever. I'll rearrange my life so that the kingdom can be advanced where he has placed us on mission right here. That, that's what a beautiful, healthy church looks like. And so if you begin to hear whisperings of, I follow Jeff, or I follow Phil, or I follow Matt, or whoever, then just look them in the face and lovingly just go, that's kind of dumb. That's kind of dumb. Because we're just trying to follow Jesus. We're just trying to follow Jesus. That's all it's about. So let's do that. Let's keep Jesus in his supreme place of leadership and take ourselves out of that role and see ourselves as we actually are, which is just servants, stewards, scum. Scum. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, actually pray uh, this prayer that Jesus taught us to, to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Father, I pray that the evil that you would deliver us from would be our own arrogance and our own pride and our own sense of um, unhealthy self-worth or whatever, but instead, God, Help us to center our lives completely on you. Help us to sacrifice our own agendas to your agenda of spreading the gospel. And um, and God, if that ever gets out of whack, if we ever begin to lift up people higher than 
we should. Um, I pray your Holy Spirit would convict us of that. On the flip side of that coin, God, I pray that you would also help us to honor each other in a way that is, that is beautiful and is glorifying to you. And, um, and God, for those of us in leadership here at the church or in leadership in other ways in our homes and communities, uh, God, I pray that you would help us to lead in a way that is that mirrors what you, how you led for us on the cross, that is sacrificing, that is selfless. We love you. We thank you for the amazing example uh, that you've given us. We thank you for these words today. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God is good. Amen.